Morning, everyone. <laughs> you are useless. That was absolutely <laughs> terrible. But uh, I'll welcome myself anyway. It's great to have you. A few people did. Thank you, Barbara, as usual. Um, it's also lovely to welcome Tabitha. I'm guessing it's Tabitha, because if it's not Tabitha, then Tabitha might want to know that somebody's sitting so close to Micah, because Micah and Tabitha got engaged at Christmas, around then, and are getting married in May, and Tabitha is busy. Give them a round of applause. What a lovely, brilliant thing. So it's great to have you with us, Tabitha. Um, if you have a, a, a addendum to the notice, uh, Jill went on my instructions that we've got, we're sort of, we've got volunteers um, because of something Vanessa said to me. But we do need a volunteer tomorrow. I think there's one that's short to work with Sandra. Oh, Whitehawk tomorrow and Friday. Who wouldn't want to work on Chomp with uh, Sandra? So if you can possibly help. Um, let Sandra know, uh, because it's a great club that is run over there, and Sandra does a great job. Timing of it is half, half ten to half one. Brilliant thing to do. And if you're thinking, do you know what, I could actually, I'm free on Friday, I'm free tomorrow. Do that, that would be really brilliant. Grab Sandra afterwards, that would be great. Um, we're looking through this book of Ruth. Um, and uh, I hope you've found it helpful so far. We've just done a couple of weeks. We've got this week and then we've got one more week. And today we're trying to cover two chapters. I'm not quite sure how that worked out. Sam's not even in the room for me to, to cuss him. But he, he chopped it up and we did chapter one in two weeks and then chapter two and three in one week and he dumped it on me. And there are some weird moments, slightly weird moments in chapter two and three, uh, controversial moments in two and three. Um, and so what we're going to do, so grab a Bible if you if you fancy it, because it would be good to have it in front of you, because at some point we're going to read all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. I'm not sure in my time in this church that we've read two whole chapters back to back, um, but the purpose of doing that is, is that we've gone well through chapter 1. If you've been around the last couple of weeks, then you have heard every word of chapter 1, and I suspect when Sam does chapter 4 next week, he will read the whole of chapter 4. So, if we don't read all of it, then you're going to miss some of this story. And it is this great story. So if you want a physical copy, I often use different versions um, when I put stuff up on the screen because of the versions I prefer, but I've tried to behave myself and it's the same version that is in the uh, books, that, in the Bibles that are in the room, those blue ones. Um, and what uh, we're going to do today is I'm going to introduce some stuff uh, beforehand. Um, if you imagine a kind of sandwich... Uh, with the first loaf, with the first piece of bread being fairly chunky, the filling is going to be us reading chapters two and three together. And as we often do in, um, in this place, you might be used to in, in if you're visiting, uh, you'll, you'll be used to it if you're here, trying to get you to kind of think about this story. Um, I'm, I was debating this morning, I really love it when we sort of talk to each other about what we've just read. I really love that. Um, but we've done it quite a bit recently, and I'm going to let you off today. You're not going to do that. And the introverts are going, yeah, as much as introverts go, yeah. Um, inside they're going, yeah. Um, but I'd love some feedback on whether you find that helpful or not, actually. I'm, that's a sort of a little bit there. But come and speak to me if you think it is a helpful thing to do, or if you go, actually, I really hate it when we have to do that. There's a difference, actually. Even if you hate it, it might be useful. But if you think it's not useful, then, um, then let me know, because we do it quite often. 
And it's just a way of kind of upping the ante that when you read the story, if you know you've got to turn to the person next to you and talk about it, it engages you a bit more, doesn't it? I think that's probably uh, why we do it. But we're just going to read two and three, and then I've got one thought really to share with you today. And it might be that actually somebody wants to put their hand up and say, I've had a thought from reading that, and we'll go, we'll go with that, and then we'll have communion as the other slice of bread, fittingly. Um, is that okay? Because what I want us to think about initially is I want you to think about story. We know that Ruth is a story. And the bit that I brought to you a couple of weeks ago that I don't know whether you thought was controversial or not, lots, uh, there was some good feedback about it, but was bringing you this thought that was a significant one, that as you read the book of Ruth, it's really, really helpful to understand that it wasn't written at the time of the story happening. We know that because actually the book itself, it tells us about some stuff that happens generations later. So even if you just read chapter 4, you're going to go, oh, this was written sometime later. But also other people who have studied this stuff and are smarter than me, the general consensus is well, it wasn't just written a little bit later, it was written hundreds of years later. So you have this story of Ruth that's at the beginning of the times of the judges. So the people have just done all of the, um, you know, the 40 years wandering around the desert. They've come into the promised land. They're setting up some kind of system of governance. And the first system that they have, which is pretty awful, is under this system of judges. So if you think about people like Samson and Gideon and Deborah and these, these judges that ruled at the time, we're in that period of history that the story is about. However... I don't want to labour the point because I talked about it quite a lot two weeks ago. But it was the generally consensus of the opinion is that it was written much, much later. It was written after they had been established in the promised land. They had built the temple. All of that stuff had been done. And then they'd been taken over by other superpowers that were in the area. The Persians and then the Babylonians came. And basically all of the, the kind of uh, promised land, the hope of what was going to happen is ransacked and the people are taken to Babylon. And a lot happens in the time that they're in captivity. Why does a lot happen there? Because they're not in their own land. And the time, that's a time when you reflect and you think, what is going on here? And if it's true that this book that we're going to read a bit of together in a moment or two was, uh, was done then, then you have to ask yourself the question, why did somebody write the story about Ruth so much later? What is it they were trying to get at? And we should do this with all of Scripture, because there's always a story to be told, and there's always a storyteller. And that's true of every kind of story that you know of. Every story you can think of has a storyteller and a story. When you think of um, Dickens and you think about his books that he wrote, you know that he's writing in a particular time. You think about whatever your favourite author is. What, what are they doing? We, we often don't bring that to the Bible. We think we're reading this flat piece of history and Ruth is just a bit of history. Ruth is a bit of history that's quite an interesting bit of history, but it's written at a completely different time with a completely different viewpoint, and therefore it has a purpose. And if you can get to the bottom of, we don't know who the storyteller was, so that's a really difficult thing. But if you can get to the bottom of why was this story written, why is it included in the Bible, and what did the storyteller hope to tell us by telling us this story? Does that make sense? Now, you might go, oh, no, Dave, that's missing the point. Surely they're just telling us a historic event. That's never the case. That's never the case. 
Uh, in my studies, one of the earliest things I learned in the field of anthropology and in the field of ethnography, which is learning about culture and writing about culture, is one of the key phrases is, there's no view from nowhere. There's no view from nowhere. The moment you decide to tell uh, somebody, you write down about another culture that you've experienced or another person that you know, the moment you do that, you have to acknowledge that there's no view from nowhere. This is just my view of that person. This is just my view of that culture. Does that make sense? And so much of our lives are about stories. Your life is a, is a series of stories that you tell yourself. The people who you know and love are actually a series of stories. If I asked you to think about your best friend, who's the person that you feel closest to and most able to be vulnerable with, as you begin to think about that person, you'll begin to think of the stories that affirm the reason they're your best friend. As you think about that person, you picture them in the place where you perhaps first met, or that holiday that you had together, or that conversation that was so significant, or that significant moment that you had. We never just think of people with their faces, do we? We think about their character and their personality. How do we know about their character and their personality? Because of their stories. And what I want to, to, to get you thinking about today is what's your story? What's your story? And what are the stories of the other people around you? Because this story of Ruth is a story that is certainly trying to tell a story. When we read it in a little moment or two, uh, see, see the amount of times the word Moab is mentioned. There is undoubtedly something about the book of Ruth that is something to do with Moabites. It's obsessed with telling you that Ruth was a Moabite. It could tell you that in the first opening lines, and then it could move on, but it doesn't. It consistently refers to as Ruth the Moabite, or the Moabite widow, or the woman from Moab. It talks about it over and over again, because I think, this is my uh, two P's worth, I think that there's definitely, without a doubt, a, trying to recorrect a misunderstanding or a bad bit of teaching, or a bit of good old-fashioned racism, actually, about the Moabites that has built up over time. I'm absolutely convinced, the more I read it, that the reason it's written from this position is it's so favourable about Ruth, who is a Moabite. Whereas this period in between when it happened and this point when it was written is a period where the Bible is full of stories and uh, that Moabites are unclean. They shouldn't be allowed into the temple. They shouldn't be allowed into, into the assembly. They should be shunned. And you should definitely not intermarry with them. That's all the way through. But if it's written when we think it's written, then it has a very different kind of um, view on it. Knowing our story about other, knowing the story about others is hugely important. It absolutely impacts the way that you treat people. I wonder if you can think of examples of people who you've judged, people you've had bad thoughts about, and then you've found some, some other part of the story. Has that ever happened to you? I remember coming out, uh, I don't remember why I'd left the church service early, um, but I'd left the church service early. And I just, there was a guy I knew, a family, well-known family within the church. And he, he had this kid up against the wall. And he was shouting at his son. Now, this is a guy who I thought was like perfect father, kind of. And I remember seeing him shout at his son and shake him. And the son's trying to go back into the Sunday school room. And the daddy's dragging him out. And I just remember going back up down the road thinking, oh gosh, I thought he was a good dad. That was really weird. Weeks later, I put two and two together as I heard about the story of, did, did you hear about Simon's 
dad, I think it was, who had dropped dead and in the middle of the service he'd had a message to say that you'd, you'd, you need to come home now. So here's a dad who's just found out his own father has died and he's trying to get his child out of Sunday school to go and suddenly can you see a completely different story? I don't know whether any of you saw this recently but I thought it was hilarious. Um, did, you see, did you see this cover any children's eyes? Did you see this picture? Has anybody seen this? This was when he came out of uh, their latest baby, or their last baby. What, what's he called? <laughs> In line to the throne somehow. Uh, what? John. George. No, not George. Louis. Louis. Sorry. Um, so this is a strange scene. He's just come out of the hospital, and here's the waiting crowds. I wonder what you think the story is. Has somebody said something to him? Oh, that's awful. Thankfully, somebody took a picture at exactly the same time from a different angle. <laughs> Every story, to say that the story has two sides is a real misnomer, isn't it? The story has multiple sides. You are a product of your story. The way that you're in this room now is a product of a story. Your views about God is a product of a story. What's your story? What's other people's story? Because the way we treat people, I'm going to take that off, I feel slightly uncomfortable leaving that there. Um, the way that we treat other people, from other countries, from different tribes to you, from different viewpoints to you, how much do you know their story? And today I want you to, to just um, pause and think about that. Think about individuals who you struggle with, who you find annoying. People who, if they walked in the room today, you would not particularly be pleased to see them at best and actually leave the room at worst. How much do you really know of their story? How much do you really know of your own story? That might sound like an odd thing. You might think, well, if there's anybody's story, I know it's my own. But those of you who have been around the block a little bit more will know the older that I get, the more I realise there's whole bits of my story that I misunderstood, that I've forgotten about. That at a deep, deep level, there are some of the most traumatic bits of my story that I have covered up and I've forgotten. Bits of my story that have shaped who I am, but my uh, survival mechanism has kicked in and actually helped me, or it thinks it's helped me, to forget about some of those incidents. If you've had significant trauma in your life, then there's a good chance that you will struggle perhaps to even remember that exact thing that happened, but you know the wound is there. Some of us don't even know our own story very well. And it's really important, this is my kind of piece today, it's really important that we listen to the stories of others and understand them. Because if you do that, you will inevitably be a kinder person, not a less kind person. That empathy thing that goes, I didn't know that about you. I never knew that thing about your story. The way that I've judged you, the way that I've thought about you, if I knew that, I would never have come to that conclusion. And the truth is true also of yourself that so many of us struggle to be kind to ourselves because we're telling ourselves lies about ourselves, because we haven't paused to stop and really listen to our own story. 
I really believe that to be true. I really believe it to be true. Because there is no view from nowhere. And my view of myself is a multifaceted kind of mosaic. And some of that mosaic, somebody, if I could actually go back, I could realize wasn't real. You have people who carry within them that they were responsible for their parents' divorce. They may not even verbalize that, but they've carried that in them. They were responsible for the abuse that they had themselves. An understanding story and positions of story. When I was, used to be a youth worker, I um, started a little project to mentor kids in, in the local school. And in doing that, uh, I was the, one of the first people to be a mentor. And I'd gone into this school and I'd said, oh, you know, how about launching this mentoring thing? And I remember really clearly having a conversation with this woman who, uh, did you go to Stopsley? No. Um, the school it was in, the teacher now, literally in my head, do you, do you know Glee? Do you remember that program, Glee? And the blonde woman with the tracksuit on who was in charge of... That's who she is. I don't think it was her, but there was like the head of PE who looked very like her. So even as I remember... You see, you can't remember my own story. But I remember meeting this woman in a corridor and talking about how mentoring can help people and that. And she said, I'm convinced, yeah, you, you don't need to convince me anymore. The problem is, is that nobody ever can find mentors. We've had businesses who come in and say, you know, well, we, yeah, it's a good idea to have mentors in the school, but then they can never find them. And we've had all kinds of groups, and I said, I'll find you some. And I went, ran down the road, ran, made a couple of phone calls, and went back at the road that afternoon and said, I found you three. In fact, one of them was Ian Fleming, some of you know Ian. Another one was a postman, and one was me. And, uh, and so, so they said, right, okay. And then I said, because I'm stupid, give me the worst. Give me the worst, kid. And so they said, right, we know who that is. <laughs> and they had to think about number two and three, but they knew who the number one was. And uh, they passed me on to this other teacher, and he, I remember him saying to me, right, here's a little profile of this guy you're going to meet with. Nobody in this school likes him. He is an absolute pain in the backside. They said, we, we hold a little, some of us hold a little league table of the one who's going to get um, excluded next, and David is right at the top head and shoulders above anybody else in the whole school. He's the worst kid in the school, and the quicker he does get expelled, the better. I promise you that's what he said to me, and he was a member of my church. The quicker he gets expelled, the better it will be for, for us. So I, I go to meet this 13-year-old, kind of shaking with what kind of monster, you know, they're going to bring out this Hannibal Lecter guy on a platform, <laughs> and out comes this skinny little guy, who looked sort of all of 11 years old, but was actually 13. And we wandered down the road to this youth centre that we had. We started to play a few games of pool, started to chat to him. And immediately he realised, actually, I quite like this kid. He's not responding to me very much. I can imagine he is a pain to teach. Those teachers in the room, uh, you have my sympathy. I, I've already done you a bit of a misjustice with what I've just told you. But you could see his hard work. He was absolutely fine with me, but if there was something he didn't want to do, he did not do it. There was nothing you could do. And I met with him over weeks, and slowly I, I, I sort of I got to know him a little bit. I didn't know much about his story, but at least we were more comfortable in each other's company. An hour every week. Happened over months, just getting to know this lad. It was a real privilege to do that. And then one day I went to the school to pick him up, and they said, he's not in. He's not in again. He hasn't been in. And then the, teachers, the, the woman on reception said, he only comes in the days that he's meeting with you. 
I said, wow. And she said, but he's not even in today. So I said, okay, well, can you send him a message? Next week, turned up again, he wasn't in. By the fourth week, the school rang me and said, uh, Dave, this is a bit odd, and I can't, I can't imagine you could do this today. This wasn't that long ago. But they said, we can't go round or anything, or it's hard for us to go round. Would you go round to the house and see if he's okay? No one's heard anything from him. And they gave me his address, and I went round to his house. I don't think you'd do that today, would you? Sadly, I think, in some cases anyway. So I went round to his house, and it was in this part of Luton. It wasn't a particularly bad part of Luton or whatever. It was a relatively uh, nice little house on a new-build housing estate. And I knocked on the door, and David answers. And uh, he says, oh, hi, Dave, you all right? I said, why aren't you at school? And he invited me in. And I went in. <coughs> I didn't do that these days. Um, <laughs> went into the house, and the place was just this bombsite. With every door in the house broken or busted in. The place an absolute mess. And I stood in his kitchen, and he told me basically his story that he hadn't told me yet that his mum had moved away years ago. She was living in Spain. His dad uh, was a scaffolder who left the house every morning at some ridiculous hour, so he never saw his dad. There was money left for him on the side. He was the only one in the house. He's 13 years old. Every morning he'd get himself up. Every morning he'd get himself dressed. It's this complete mess of a house. And I said to him, what happens with the doors? And he said, oh, well, I, uh, I don't always know what's happened to the doors. I just hear the noise of my dad coming in drunk at night, angry and cross, and smashing the place up. And here's this 13-year-old boy. He showed me his room, and in his room was this incredible menagerie of animals. That he had hamsters, he had uh, rabbits, he had snakes. And I watched as he just took one out, one at a time, with incredible care and just love for these animals that he had. There was bed, had no uh, sheet on, no duvet, but he took care of these animals. Just, these are stories that any of you, I'm sure, could recount, where you find out truth about people. One point of view that says, this kid is out of control and is a pain, and the quicker we get rid of him, the better. Another point of view, that all of those teachers if they could have been with me in that room, would have, would have seen a different viewpoint, would have told a different story, because stories matter, and understanding people's stories really matters. And when we don't listen to one another, with open ears as well as open hearts, we make all kinds of misjudgments. The way I treated him from then on was very different. We're still weirdly in touch today. And he's got about 25 dogs, this guy, now. And he's probably 35 years old. That's depressing. And he can't be that old. But, um, but he's doing okay. <clears throat> Listening to people's stories really, really matters. And that's why a counsellor or a friend who's close enough to do some of the job that a good counsellor can do is so important for us as individuals, I think. Because all a good counsellor is doing is allowing you to hear your own story again. Um, do you know Carlos Ruiz Zafón? Do you know him who wrote that book, Shadow of the Wind? Brilliant book, really brilliant book. He said this, this is beautiful. A story is a letter that 
that the author writes to themselves to tell themselves things that they would be unable to discover otherwise. A story is a letter that the author writes to themselves to tell themselves things that they would be unable to discover otherwise. I think the Bible is a bit like that. It's a story that people have written down so that we can understand ourselves. So much misunderstanding about the Bible. Picking up the Bible and reading a book like Ruth is incredibly intimidating until somebody takes a bit of pressure off it and say, it's just a story. Read it as a story. Read it as a story and see what it says to you. Because this book is a book of stories of men and women and God. How has God been throughout history towards humanity? And how have men and women responded? And the reality is that most of this book is men and women responding badly to the faithfulness of God. Of not keeping their side of a covenant. Of letting themselves down. Of being too judgmental. Of being too harsh. Of not being kind. Of not understanding the stories of others. And the consistency of God who listens to everybody's stories. Who hears everybody's heart. And loves everybody consistently in the same. That's the storybook that we read. So we're going to read Ruth 2 and Ruth 3. Does anybody fancy doing a bit of reading? Jake? Anybody else? Jake, brilliant. Would you like to come out? And we'll... When I sort of said reading, I did mean read aloud, not just sitting there reading. Would you like to do a bit of reading aloud? Come on, brilliant, thank you. Give these two a round of applause because that's a brave, brilliant thing. So it gives my, um, gives my uh, voice a little bit of a rest. So if I start off, then it gives you guys a chance to um, have a little look at what you're going to read. So I'm going to read chapter 2. And then, um, what's your name? Alan. Alan. You're going to read verse 1 to verse 10. And then, Jake, you're going to do 10 onwards. Is that okay? So if you guys stand over here, I'll give you a microphone. And the words are going to be on the screen. But if you'd like to, um, if you're looking at them in the, in the Bible in front of you, they should be the same. Oh, there's that quote. That's good, isn't it? So Naomi 2. Uh, Naomi 2. Ruth 2. So as we read it, all I want you to do is listen to this story. If you're able to ask yourself, uh, what's the storyteller trying to s- s- tell me here? Do that. Otherwise, pick a character that you can see there. There's Naomi, there's Ruth, there's Boaz. They're the three main characters we're about to read. And wait till they come up and imagine you're that person and how you might feel in this time. Is that okay? Let's uh, give it a whirl. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, go ahead my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, 
The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseers, the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work with me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about you, all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley that she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also bore out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth took her mother-in-law, uh, told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting with my, all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a, home, find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, out, wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. 
Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is laying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay, lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and discovered a woman laying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are kinsman, kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you have you've showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to redeem, good. Let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Brilliant. Thank you, guys. So there's a lot going on there, isn't there? A lot of story. And like I said, I wanted us to read it so that we've read it all. And I wanted us to read it because I wanted you to sort of go, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about. And potentially to go away from today and read it again and wonder more what it's about. Because there's quite a lot going on there. There is this kind of bit. I'm glad those guys read chapter three because there's some stuff in there that's a bit weird, isn't there? This uncover his feet and lie at his feet and be perfumed up and washed. It all sounds a little bit seedy. They're on the threshing floor. There's a joke in there somewhere, I'm sure. Um, but um, from what I glean from it, it uh, <laughs> oh, they just keep coming. Um, is, so, so here's my thought for you. And then we might just be able to have 30 seconds or a minute, if, if you have any other thoughts from that. Because there's so much sort of going on there. But here's my kind of thought for you, in line with what I think about the story. Why is this story being told to us? It's being told to us because it keeps on talking about this Moabite, this foreigner, this person that you're supposed to be suspicious of and not marry. Well, she's married into an Israelite family. She's come over. Nobody seems to have given her any grief. They seem to embrace her. She's there in the fields. Boaz comes along. He's this good Israelite man with land and everything else. He looks at her. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't seem to uh, bother the slightest that she's a foreigner. He notices that she's of noble character and is attracted to her. And they end up together. So it's this incredible kind of story about how we feel about Moabites. But I also think that 
the, the uh, person telling us the story clearly wants us to know about Ruth's character, don't they? They, they clearly want that. There are some people who say that what happens there on the threshing floor is much ruder, shall we say. There are some people who say that the word that used for feet is the same as for another part of a man's body. To uncover that and lie there. Um, there's all kinds of that stuff. And sort of that intrigues me because I'm a, I'm a progressive and I like to... And actually some of the, people, some of the, the kind of biblical scholars who I really like go down that line. Um, and it might be true. I don't think it ruins the story. I don't think it ruins the overall point. But I, it doesn't make sense to me because of this story. This thought that actually other people say she was the, the, the wisdom of Naomi would say uncover his feet because he's had a hard day working. He's had too much to drink. He's going to be fast asleep till the morning. You're not going to get to have a private one-on-one with him. Uncover his feet because when your feet get cold, you wake up. Could it just be as innocent as that, that it's a sort of smart way of getting him to wake up and notice that she's there? And the fact that she's all doled up is not a very subtle way, but letting him know that I am for you. I'm available to you. It's his right as the kinsman redeemer to, ha- to, 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 to marry Ruth. It's absolutely his right. So there's nothing I don't think particularly unto- untoward going on. There's a little bit of wooing going on. I haven't used that word for a long time. There is a bit of wooing going on on her part but I think it's consistent with the rest of the story. And why would the storyteller go into those kind of details when part of the story is to let us know that this Moabite foreigner is a good woman of noble character? My one short little snappy takeaway for you, as I've considered this story, is a really, I think, a really important one. And it's simply this. is that if you're in a bit of the story, your story right now that is looking bad, that you're not satisfied and happy with, It's not the end of the story. And you have power within your story. I think it's a really important part of this, of the book of Ruth. Because chapter one is all set up to show you how powerless Naomi and Ruth are. They go from um, uh, their hometown of Bethlehem. They go into this foreign land because there's been a, a famine. And then they lose, Naomi loses her husband and her two sons, who are the in-laws to the two women, Ruth being one of them. They've lost everything. Sam did a great job of talking to us about that. Chapter 2, they've come back. They've come back into their homeland, but they've got nothing at all. Their story looks awful. This lad David, who I used to meet, I wonder what if you'd paused and asked him how he thought his story was going to end. Well, I know, because he would tell me. He told me, oh, I'm going I'm to get kicked out of school. I'm not going to get any exams. I'm never going to get a job. I'll probably go to prison. That was his own narrative of his life because that was the way it seemed to be going. If you paused the story at the end of chapter one, you would go, can't see how this is going to work out for Naomi and Ruth. Because in that culture particularly, here you have powerless women, completely powerless women, who have no land and no hope. At the end of chapter 3, they have land and they're reconnected into the family of which they were left. It's this incredible change. But how did that happen? You could say if you were just a good sort of evangelical charismatic, well, they just prayed and the Lord brought that stuff about. Hallelujah. 
They did pray. I don't doubt they prayed day and night through that famine. And the Lord did bring it about, but how did he bring it about? He brought it about because of their proactivity to refuse to give in to the story that they were currently in is the story that they always have to be in. And some of you are in stories at the moment, maybe not totally, but bits of stories, your job, your relationships, where you live, how you live, the habits that you have, that you feel like you're turning the page and you're writing the same story again. And this this part of Ruth reminds us that when you turn the page, the page is blank and actually you can take power over the decisions that you make and the things that you do. Naomi takes power. I think she's brilliant, Naomi, in this part of the story, where she says, Boaz, he, he, he obviously is fond of you. He's been kind to you. He's got an obligation to marry you. This could be a brilliant thing. I don't think it's a really underhand, terrible thing that she's doing at all. I think she sees an opportunity and she proactively goes for it because the story that she's currently in doesn't have to be the story that defines her. And we're going to take communion now. And communion is this story that happens in the middle of the universe, in the middle of history, in the middle of time, that changes everything. It's this ultimate story that changes all other stories. The reason we take communion is because, for two reasons. One is we take it because it reminds us of who God is and his story. We take these elemental things, bread and wine, bread and whatever this is, schlur. These things that you can buy in the shops. These things that were baked by somebody with their hands from wheat that grew in fields somewhere nearby. These very ordinary, normal things we put in front of us and we say, this is God that we remember. God in Christ. God who was broken who came into flesh like us. God who isn't distant and somewhere else, but God who's here in flesh, but flesh that is broken. So we do it to remember God, but we also do it to remember ourselves because we're flesh and we're blood and we are broken and we're not as we should be. And the story that gets told when we take communion is a profound one if you allow it to be, because it's this. As we take communion, this is God reminding you of your real story. This is God from his viewpoint. It's not up, it's an unfortunate hand gesture I'm doing, because he's much closer than that, but it's God who is whispering to you, you're telling yourself a story of brokenness and failure. But I want to whisper to you that you are my beloved child. So this story reframes our story. Does that make sense? It changes everything. That if you're stuck and you feel like, oh, I don't know, I don't know if I've got any hope, I don't know what my purpose is. When you take this bread that is broken body of Christ, God become flesh, it's his way of saying, oh, come back to remember the story. I died for you. Not when you got your life together, But as the Bible clearly tells us, whilst you were still a sinner, this is when my death came. This is why my death came. So it becomes this beautiful retelling of our story. And it somehow also connects all of us together in this room. There's something very 
profound and particular why we have one loaf of bread. Because in a moment this will be a lot less bread because it will be in each person in this room sharing this one loaf because we recognize in each other's stories God also feels that way about you and about you and about you. I remember being away from home once and really missing Jake. Sorry, Jake. Never gets away when he's here without me telling the story about Jake. was about six months old. And I'd been away for six or seven days and I was really, really missing him. And as I was just sitting in this fast food restaurant thinking about how much I was missing him, <laughs> somebody brought a baby in the same age right on the table next to me. I just remember having this profound thought that that parent feels about that child the way I feel about how the child that I'm missing. How's that possible? I bet this woman doesn't love that kid as much as I love my son. And then looking and thinking, do you know what? That's the way that God feels about every one of his children. That as we partake in this, we're joining our stories together. A story of redemption and liberation and hope. So we're going to sing uh, as we take up communion and it's a song that we've been singing over the last couple of years that talks about the fact that we're all invited that we're all coming and I'm going to pass around and I know sometimes we do a much more reflective kind of communion but this is going to be as we sing and it's going to be sort of messy how we get the bread around because we're going to be standing and I haven't really thought this through but we're going to make it work but we're simply going to taste this bread partake in this one body of Christ and reframe our stories and also consider the stories of people around us. Let me pray for this bread and for this wine and then we're going to take it. And what we do, I always forget to tell people this, but we tend to hold on to these little cups so that we all drink together. And again, in that sign of us being joining our stories together in this moment, in this place. Let me pray. Dear God, we thank you for this bread and this wine. We think about the profound stories of Jesus, the beautiful, brilliant, true stories of Jesus. We think about the time when Jesus' hands took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. When the hands of Christ poured wine into glasses and said, this is my blood shed for you, drink it. Remember me each time you share in this meal. God, I pray that we would remember, really remember, not the made-up story in our heads of an angry God who's disappointed with us, but the true story of a God who sees us and knows us and loves us. Bless this bread and bless this wine as we remember together. Amen.